Wait, that's a thing? Never heard of it. Oh, you have no idea. This is Haven Space, a safe place for fantasies. Brought to you by sex coach and researcher Sarah Perry. Hi, folks. This is Sarah Perry, and welcome back to Haven Space. Today, we are going to be talking about the fetish of narratophilia. By the end of this podcast, you should know what this fetish is, a little bit of history behind it, how you can find it for yourself, how to provide before and after care for the fetish if it requires it, how to go about making this happen for yourself with all of the consent, respect, and pleasure that our bodies are worthy of, and hopefully a little bit of excitement just because. Narratophilia is the fetish of dirty talk, and this can actually encompass a lot of different things. It seems like a simple um, action that a lot of people engage in when having sex, if they do engage in sex, but it's actually not that simple. First off, we need to differentiate it from things like telephone scatophilia, which is when people call other people that are not aware of this, that did not agree, did not consent, and then they either dirty talk to them, or alternatively, um, chat scatophilia, which is sending unsolicited sexual content, like, and most commonly, uh, unsolicited dick pics. So no, narratophilia is not the same. Think about every single sexy thing you've ever seen or heard written, and every time you've wanted to have a sexy conversation like that, that is exactly what we're talking about. Now, what actually turns people on can vary. For example, some people really like actually saying the words. Some people really like hearing dirty stuff and getting the mental images that come from that. And other people actually just like reenacting something that has already happened or narrating it and the bond that can happen when you're having these conversations. But it's not as simple as you think. Um, so about 45% of people in one study I was able to find, because this is not well-researched, say that they have engaged in dirty talk. What they define as dirty talk is not said in the terms of the study, so who really knows what they, know, what they think that is. Of those people saying they have engaged, about 60% are saying they would be annoyed if their partner had conversations about previous sexual experiences, even if the sexual experiences were by themselves, not just with other partners, but literally stories about masturbation or about times getting caught having sex or watching something sexy. 60% um, of people say, nope, deal breaker. And one of five in the study say they've altogether shut down an entire sexual scenario because the dirty talk was too dirty. So I'm going to give you some pointers on how we're going to prevent that from happening to you because clearly nobody wants to scare off someone that they're already liking enough to have sex with. When you're doing this kind of research online and you always come across all types of content that, um, well, random people have written about, people who don't study sexuality, people who don't have a ton of experience, and a lot of times what seems to be um, content creators that were from different places than where the readers are from. So the actual lingo can be a bit off. But something that kept coming up with this specific subject was the idea that dirty talk is putting someone down during sex. While shame, humiliation is a fetish um, and is used often in BDSM dynamics, 
Neurotophilia specifically doesn't have anything to do with being rude or crude or degrading. It actually just means dirty talking. And that can be really kind and beautiful. And you could be dirty talking to someone, talking to them about how much you love the way they smell or the way they taste. And it can be really kind and uplifting. It doesn't have to be humiliating. In fact, it kind of would cross lines and become no longer neurotophilia if it does become this like severe form of humiliation. But like I said, if you're coming across this type of crap on the internet, half the time everyone's just making up stories because they're trying to fill content on their sites or because they're trying to get people to click the click. So yeah, neurotophilia sounds a lot more interesting when it's a bunch of people being told to put on panties because they're a little whore and not, um, you know, you smell fantastic, I'd like to taste you. So in efforts to be completely transparent, you should know that there is kind of some controversy about how you define this, except for we don't need to wonder because they actually have these definitions written down in the DSM-5. Remember, the DSM-5 is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for the Psychology Field, and it outlines kind of exactly how you define certain um, quote-unquote disorders, in the case of sexuality, paraphilias, or how you treat them and how you treat them, um, and different medications that have worked. So a lot of people in psychology fields use this. As you know, if you've heard me before, we have to be really careful with fields like psychology that are literally designed around breaking down our behaviors into the sum of what is normal and what is not normal. Because people are fluid and we change and the things that are normal for me may not be normal for you. And we have to allow each other that kindness instead of scrutinizing it and creating these types of societies where you are pushed into a box that then you're uncomfortable with and you have higher rates of depression and suicidal tendencies simply because someone just wasn't kind enough to say, well, if it works for you, it works for you. The good thing is the DSM-5, which is the latest version, as you can imagine, it takes a lot of research to have a new version, but the DSM-5 with help from the Coalition for Sexual Freedom has actually made it to where fetishes and paraphilias are not considered disorders, quote unquote, until they have marked distress. And since we know marked distress normally comes from feeling like you're not being accepted into the group, we can completely avoid anything becoming a disorder if we just treat people with acceptance. So think about that next time you're feeling like someone's doing something weird. So the DSM-5 categorizes this type of fetish as a, quote, not otherwise specified paraphilia. And it's kind of strange that it would categorize it that way because what they're actually using to justify that is that it's not super common. But as I just told you, it's actually incredibly common. And when you look at what the DSM-5 says are other large disorders, it's actually looking at these things that are really shocking, like necrophilia and zoophilia and clismophilia, and these things that are kind of widely studied simply because they're so shocking that people want to know what the hell's going on. So no, I don't agree with the categorization, and also I don't care because I don't use psychology DSM-5s to um, treat my clients. Inside of narratophilia, there are actually three different types. So there are three different ways that you can kind of exhibit this behavior. One is exclusive, which means that you absolutely cannot get aroused or achieve orgasm unless you have graphic dirty talk. 
One is preferred, where you would enjoy doing it. It actually helps you achieve orgasm much faster and get in the mood much faster, but you don't absolutely have to have it. And then optional is you just kind of like it casually. So because we don't really have a ton of study on this, that just kind of sounds like it could pretty much be anybody. Uh, Then later, Dr. Joel Milner in 2008 categorized it into a category of humiliation. Strangely enough, not because of the action or because of the words that you're saying, but because specifically engaging in conversations about things that are kind of taboo tend to humiliate you already. Like basically saying it's uncomfortable for you, so it must fit into the fetish of wanting to be feeling uncomfortable. Do we agree with that? Mm, I don't know. Now, the first study on this was Blasingame in 2005, and it was categorized as kind of storytelling from one partner to another during, before, or after sex, um, erotic literature, cyber sex, audio tape, or phone sex. Of course, at the time, 2005, we hadn't really super full-on embraced the term sexting, but nowadays we, of course, have embraced that, and it definitely qualifies as narratophilia. So if you sext, you're engaging in it. Now, the stories must be graphic. And what Blazinger actually said is that they have to be specifically synchronous. That means they're happening at the same time. Well, that's difficult to note because a lot of times you put your phone down and you're no longer having a conversation with someone. When you come back, you're re-engaging in the conversation. So I think what he really means is your interaction has to be real time. And that doesn't really coincide with the term synchronous to me. Now, let's talk statistically about people that identify as men and people who identify as women. Because in general, all kind of outlandish sexual behaviors are more common in men than in women. But how do you even gauge that? How do you even study that? Well, you can't because simply put, we raise men differently than we raise women and we treat men in society differently than we treat women. And we would allow men to have conversations and interact in ways that relate to sex in a lot more free and sort of accepting ways than we would women already. So of course, it makes sense that men are most likely to say that they engage in fetishism than women. Alternatively, remember all of these studies are being done on people who are literally filling out forms, giving you information. So while we can do statistical analysis and like break down the number of people that are outside of the norm and like are pretty much likely to be lying because of their behaviors, it still depends on them telling you the truth, which we all know people A, don't do naturally and B, definitely don't do when it comes to sex. Additionally, statistically, men consume more pornography and women consume more erotica. So really, women seem to engage in neurophilia a lot more than we give them credit for. Funny enough, Dr. Michael Furlong claimed that um, it does not require touch or feel and that women need touch or feel to be aroused as opposed to men. So it was more common in men. But when you kind of break down our actual behaviors and where consumer dollars are going, that doesn't add up. Women consume much more erotica in the form of romance novels and in the forms of like literature than men do. Most men are not sitting around reading about sexy stuff. Instead, they would watch it. So recognize that mm, people may have an opinion and their opinion may be valid, but 
sometimes we got to get a bigger picture or an even bigger picture than what I can even give you to decide if it's something we need to pay attention to or not. Now, some people say it may not even be considered a fetish. So many people engage in some form of dirty talk or consuming something that gives them dirty talk that it seems like it's a little bit too often to be called something abnormal that you are attracted to. But it is important to note that, of course, any kind of sexual behavior, if unwanted by a partner or partners of yours, can cause relationship trouble or destroy relationships even. It's also important to note, would this be considered cheating? For example, websites like um, FetLife have groups where you can find dirty pen pals. You can literally look up dirty pen pals and find people where you're sitting around just sending dirty narratives to each other. I don't know that they always have to do with a phrasing of this is what I'm going to do to you and this is what you're going to do to me. But regardless of the object of the narrative, is sharing sexually explicit stories with other people cheating? If so, are the authors of sexually explicit content, are the authors of erotica, such as myself, people who are considered to be unfaithful in their relationships? Well, the very simple answer is it depends. Whatever your relationship boundaries are and have been established, those are the rules that you should make your judgments on. Your relationship with each one of your partners is completely different than every relationship with every partner you've ever had before them. Same for mine. So I could have a partner that absolutely does not care and in fact finds it extremely erotic for me to share erotic stories with other people and kind of vicariously turn them on and um, kind of do a public service, so to speak, as I've, been, as I've heard it called. Um, other people may feel like, no, this is my thing. I'm the only person that gets to hear the intricacies of your sexual fantasies in your mind. So they may feel like they're losing part of um, kind of the special connection that they have with you because of it. So very important, like always, and I'll reinstate it later, to have clear communication with your partner or partners about how they expect to be loved and make sure that it coincides with how you show love. That way you can make sure you're not hurting people and potentially fantastic relationships. Now, Psychology Today says it's an issue because you can't achieve arousal or orgasm without it. You can like get used to it and get obsessed with it. But isn't this the same crap that everyone was saying about vibrators? They're basically saying that women cannot use vibrators because then their clits won't be able to orgasm with just hands or just with oral sex later with our partners. But that's a total lie. And actually, I think it's just part of the way that we keep people under wraps in their sexual behaviors. Another more kind of critical side could be if someone has a compulsive disorder that would then make them use commercial services like phone sex operators and then start spending a lot of the family money. These issues though, for me, aren't so much related to cheating. They're much more related to budget planning, which is like the other number one reason that people get divorced. If you don't have clear expectations with your partner about what you're allowed to spend or not allowed to spend, or you keeping your own money and what your responsibilities are to commit to your kind of load of the expenses, then how do you even know in advance that this is going to be acceptable? A lot of people 
are raised in environments where they do not have a sexual outlet that is healthy, where they are told that sexuality is gross, it's disgusting, don't touch yourself, we don't do that in front of people. And then there's trauma that relates then to being with other people and having sexuality. This is super clear in people that have what is called, quote, porn addictions, that are people who grew up not thinking that porn was something that could be shared and end up completely ostracizing their family. And then their compulsion to consume porn and find pleasure in those ways is bigger because they don't have the option of sharing it with the people in their lives. So it becomes super secretive. And this is another kind of um, addiction. The interesting part is that the part of our brain that keeps secrets is the part of our brain that handles protection. So when we are having an affair, for example, when we have secrets from our partners, what we're actually doing is triggering the part of our brain that has now become defensive and wants to keep the secret safe. And because of that, our attraction for this secret or this person is larger and is um, kind of magnified more than what it would have been naturally if they hadn't been a secret to begin with. Similar with these kinds of habits of like these um, secret sex habits, you end up becoming so protective over your information and the feeling of shame surrounding it and wanting to preserve the idea that you're not a person that does that, that you become more and more likely to continue to consume. At the end of the day, just like with any addiction, the enemy of addiction, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it is connection. We must open up to the people that we deem worth loving and being loved by if we think we're going to get out of compulsive behaviors that are actually damaging to us and to those relationships. Now, going back to exactly how to narrate information, dirty talk can be as romantic or as graphic as you want it to be. And just because you are saying things that are super graphic doesn't mean that there are things you actually want to happen. It's super common to play out fantasies about rape, to play out fantasies about assault, and really kind of explore pushing the boundaries of the things that you never thought would be acceptable to say out loud once you have a partner that you're comfortable with. It can be extremely arousing, and it's not unhealthy. Talking about your fantasies doesn't mean you're now committed to making them happen. And it doesn't mean you would like for it to happen physically. We live in societies where consent is important and we have laws and rules and morality surrounding our behavior and the way we engage with other people. But that doesn't mean that our minds don't create twisted little ideas that are super fun to explore also. So remember, if you start off vanilla, you can push a little bit every time and using more aggressive language would then excite more aggressive behaviors. Um, so, you know, go crazy. Feel free to talk about things that have happened in the past if that's something that you have agreed with your partner. Talk about things happening right now, like what you would like someone to do to you or what you can do to them. Um, you can also talk about things that you've always been curious about and under the frame of I don't want to explore this yet. I don't feel like this is an invitation, but this is certainly a conversation about that thing that I've always been excited about. Um, a good idea for something like that would be any kind of anal play where you really have to emotionally prepare, a lot of times physically prepare, but having the conversations about it, even if you don't want to be touched in that way, can be extremely arousing. So just 
go wild with your fantasies. Where can you find this? Um, if you don't have a partner that wants to engage in this and they feel comfortable and you feel comfortable going somewhere else, um, you can get on FetLife, F-E-T-L-I-F-E.com. And there are plenty, plenty, plenty of profiles where people can post stuff. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a Facebook and you can have different folders and you can show your writing and you can show a bunch of your stuff on there and people um, can read your stuff. And a lot of, some of the people can charge you, which is kind of fantastic because, you know, we want to buy our erotica and our porn directly from the people doing it so they can profit. Um, of course, the famous 1-900 operators, life has become a lot easier and you can just go online and find that very easily. Any kind of erotica. If you get on YouTube and search for narratophilia, um, there are a few artists that are using this term for their music creation. So I wouldn't recommend doing that because you're not going to find really great stuff on there. Um, so just start soft, like I was talking about vanilla behaviors and wonderful compliments. Make sure you communicate beforehand on appropriate times to use this. For example, if you're engaging in sexting and someone loves to get a sexy message while they're at work, but another person is like, I can't focus on my open heart surgery because you just told me this story about me having sex. And having those boundaries can be really, really, really important. Um, I had an experience myself where I commented to a support group dealing with jealousy and compersion about how one of the things that I really loved was when a partner that I had told me stories about them being with other people. Um, and I liked all of the graphic detail. And one of the fellow support group goers very intelligently pointed out that it's important for the other partners to have also consented to that information being shared. So that was something I had never considered, the fact that your sexual stories with other partners don't belong just to you. It's similar as you wouldn't share pictures of someone without their permission or videos of someone without their permission. It's important that we keep those narratives um, either to fantasy or to people that have agreed to be um, engaged in, in that way, to be fetishized by you in that way. So make sure you're being conscientious of your other partners. Negotiate turnoffs, um, hard stops. If, for example, let's go back to the anal play example. If that's not something that turns you on at all, and if bringing it up is actually going to turn you off, then that seems like an important thing to note. This is a time when a safe word is completely appropriate because you don't need to go slower. You can just redirect the conversation. You can say, "Ugh, yeah, we're done. That we're not going with that one." But remember, being turned on and being turned off is just so nuanced. You kind of just have to go with the flow little by little until you find your comfort level. So thanks for tuning in, and I will catch you next time. This has been another podcast of Haven Space. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Haven Space by Sarah and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Haven Space by Sarah. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a patron and helping fund more talks like this in the future.